So we are, we're moving into message six in the end game series, Exposed by Jesus. Um, this has been a series where we are looking at the detailed teachings that Christ gives us, Matthew 24 and 25, uh, that scripture gives us in Thessalonians and the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. We're going through all of the end time scripture so that we can have a biblical understanding of what is to come. And this gives us a significant amount of wisdom, knowing the direction life will go, knowing the direction governments will go, knowing the directions culture will go, knowing the way things will go. Everything that the Bible said would happen has happened, and every, everything that would need to happen to lead to the final things happening all of that is falling into place more and more and more each day. And I promise by the end of this series, you will believe that even more than you do right now. The message today, though, uh, what, I, what I believe that the Lord needs us to do is to give him a few minutes to teach us and give us a biblical understanding of where the tribulation comes from, specifically the idea of a seven-year tribulation. And just in case you're new to the church or new to church, the tribulation is a seven-year period of time. And when you hear people talk about the end times or you hear people talk about the end of days or the end game, they are referring to the tribulation. This is the seven-year period of time that takes place on the earth prior to the second coming of Christ. And there'll be a lot of details in Revelation about the tribulation itself, which we will start next week. But before we get there, I want us to understand the biblical truth of where we get the seven years from, the seven-year tribulation, and how it begins, and the major events that take place in it. And we actually get that from a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And now, this, this prophecy that we're going to look at in Daniel chapter 9 is over the 19th century was one of the most attacked scriptures and prophecies in the world by secularists and by atheists. Not because of its inaccuracy, but it was attacked because of its accuracy. The prophecy that we're going to learn about today doesn't just talk about the end of time, doesn't just talk about the tribulation. It talks about a, a lot of different things that we'll get into in a minute. But this is one of the few scriptures and the few prophecies that actually give us timing connected with it with start dates. The accuracy of the scripture that you'll see here in the next few minutes was so accurate that secularists and atheists believed that it had to have been written, it had to have been written after the events took place and faked uh, in order to deceive people into believing or thinking that it was God. The reason why the secularists chose this verse because of its accuracy, because if they could prove this verse and this scripture and this prophecy in Daniel 9 was faked, then they could say that the entire Bible was a, a, a deception. The entire Bible is not just not accurate, but that it was intentionally forged and intentionally written for control or whatever it was that they were trying to prove. And for a long time, this was, scripture was attacked. Until, because one of the main things that it prophesies is the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it's, it's, it's accurate down to the day, which you'll see in just a minute. And until uh, we discovered the manuscripts of Daniel 9 that were trans, translated from Hebrew into Greek over 100 years before Christ walked the earth, 
We found those manuscripts, and when those manuscripts were found, then it proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that at least half of this prophecy was 100% written and put down over 100 years before Jesus walked on the earth, literally disproving and throwing out the argument of the secularists and the atheists forever. Now you don't hear anybody ever mention it because what they thought would be the verse that brought the Bible down ended up being the verse that props it up more than any other scripture in the Bible. And so I want us to understand the weight of this scripture. I want us to understand what we're about to get into and know that, that the details of this deeply matter, and I'm going to do my best not to screw it up, okay? So you just say some silent prayers for me as we go through this. But this scripture in, in, in Daniel 9, we're going to start with verse 23 to 27. This scripture is Gabriel, an angel, a messenger of God, coming to Daniel to give him clarification about a, a, a message or a vision that he's seen. And he's literally, Gabriel reveals to Daniel 490 years of major events concerning Israel, the Messiah, and the Antichrist. So that's what the prophecy is, and that's what we're about to see and look at. And I want to read Daniel 9.23. It says this, so consider the message and understand the vision. So that's what we're going to do this morning as a church family. I want us to consider the message, consider what's given, and I want us to understand the vision and understand what Gabriel has given to Daniel and Daniel wrote down and God has preserved for us in this moment. That's the heart of what we want to do today. We want to gain an understanding of this scripture and this prophecy, and I believe that the Holy Spirit will open up our minds to understand it. I think it will build our faith. I think that it will cause some of us to have a little revival in our heart. I believe that with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul. I'm going to move down Daniel 9, 24. This is actually where we get into the heart of the prophecy and into the actual scriptures, and this is what it says. It says, 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to stop their transgression, to put an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So the heart of what I want you to see here first, before we get into the idea of the 70 weeks, is that the, the language here is final. There's a finality to everything that Gabriel says to Daniel. I just want to read it again so that you can see that this is pointing towards the end. Uh, it says, your holy city to stop their transgression, finality, to put an end to sin, finality, to make atonement for iniquity once and for all, finality, to bring in an everlasting righteousness, finality, to seal up vision and prophecy, finality, and to anoint the most holy place, finality. That this prophecy, though it doesn't begin with the end times, it begins with much earlier days, the heart of what Gabriel is saying is by the time this prophecy fully plays out on the earth, all of these things will be accomplished. Specifically later in the verse, and we'll get there in this message, it point blank says the end times will come like a flood. He, he, is, he goes from the beginning of this prophecy at 490 years to the end, and, and to the end, he says, eventually, this is, this is the end of all things. And so I want, us, I want us to look at that. The first thing, and this is important, this is the part where it's weird, it's a little different, and, and it's not a normal message, and you gotta listen, you gotta pay attention, and you probably wanna watch this over a couple times. This is, I want us to understand the term 70 weeks, 
This is, there's a few things that are extremely important that we have to understand. The first thing is that when you see that word weeks, in Hebrew, that is Shabua. okay? On three, we're all gonna say that together. You guys ready? One, two, three, Shabua. I didn't hear you guys. Did you guys say it? We'll try it one more time. One, two, three. There they go. See, I knew you didn't say it the first time because I didn't hear you. All right, liars. Shabua. This means a period of seven. This does not necessarily mean a week in the way that we understand it. The literal word Shabua in Hebrew means a, a period of seven. That could be seven days or seven years. Now, the reason that's a little odd to you and me is because we, we are very familiar with weeks. We're very familiar with periods of seven days, but we're not familiar with periods of seven years. But the thing that you've got to understand is that Israel, God's people, the Hebrew people, they absolutely, their entire life revolved around seven-year periods. God instilled in his law and his decrees and the way he set up the nation of Israel, he put in a seven-year cycle. Every seven years, you rested the land. Every seven years, if this is, I mean, I'm telling you, I just think we ought to, ought to take from some of this. Every seven years, if you have debt, it gets forgiven. Can I get an amen? All right, God's law is pretty good, all right? Everybody whines about some stuff, and I'm like, there's some good stuff in there that if we could just, every seven years, if you sell yourself as a bond servant, uh, you would be released. If you sold land, uh, that God was very, he wanted each family to have land, uh, and he said, every, every seven, if you have to sell your land, you get in financial trouble, and the seventh year, that land reverts back to you. So there is, there, the, the, the seven-year cycle was a very, very normal thing for Israel and for the Hebrew people. That's the number one thing, I think, that we have to really gather, is that what this really says is not 70 weeks in the terms of the way that you and I understand 70 weeks, that what it's saying is 70 sevens. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew, 70 sevens, 70 sets of seven-year period. So that's important. That's where we get the 490 years. And I'm going to explain this all in detail here in just a minute. But I want to read like the NIV, for example, to you so that you can, you can hear this. This is the NIV translation. 70 sevens are decreed for your people and of your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to sell it vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people. I want to read this in the NLT. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people. So I, I, we, the first thing that we really have to understand is that what, what the angel is giving uh, Daniel, what Gabriel is giving Daniel is 70 sets of seven years which is 490 years. This prophecy is revealing, this prophecy is revealing several major events over a period of 490 years prior to any of them happening or taking place. That's the heart of this. Now, before we get into the details of this, there's one other big, big, big factor that we have to acknowledge and understand. Because this prophecy, because it gives us years, the entire timing is in years, 490 years, 70 sets of seven-year periods, we have to understand and know two things. First, and I know this is basic, but some people forgot in the first service. Now, I know this is basic. The way we do timing is it counts up, up to Christ, B.C., before Christ. So if we say 100 B.C., that's 100 years before Christ. And if we say 100 AD, that's 100 years, uh, and I'm not going to try to pronounce the, the, the words, but it's after Christ. 
So 100, year, 100 BC is 100 years before Christ. If you go 200 years, you're at 100 AD. Everybody raise your hand if we remember that. We got that. That's cool. All right. The second one is way less common knowledge. But ancient calendars were 360 days, not 365. This is a significant, significant factor to understand this message in this prophecy. Uh, ancient Hebrew and the Israelites all ran off a 360-day calendar. Ancient Egypt ran off a 360-day calendar. Ancient Babylon ran off a 360-day calendar. In fact, the whole known world in ancient times ran off a 360-day calendar. Then we came along somewhere and screwed it all up, okay? It was, it was very simple, right? You didn't have to do the whole January February to figure out which days had 30 and which days had to remember that stupid from school. Like that was one of those things where they, they just jacked it up for no reason. Uh, and so now we have 365 days. That's gonna highly matter here in just a few minutes that you understand that, that ancient uh, civilizations and that ancient cultures, they ran off a 360 day a year calendar, not a 365 and it matters significantly in this message. So I wanna hold that on. I want you to just remember those two things as we go through this prophecy because we get into the details, it's gonna matter. Daniel 9, 25, this is what it says. Know and understand this. From the issuance of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will re be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of distress, okay? So he says the issuance of this decree or the beginning of this, this, this 490 year period is gonna be when an issuance of a decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem. And this is significant. Because though there were three and maybe four times there were ancient decrees by kings to rebuild the temple, there was only one time in history when a king put out a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, and we know that date biblically from Nehemiah, and from, we know the exact day from extra-biblical texts. So before we get to that, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, that we all understand what's happening. I just want to, I want to go slow because there's math, all right? And I, I'm not calling you dumb, but math isn't easy for everybody. Can I get an amen? Okay. Everybody's like, you need to learn calculus. Why? <laughs> Anybody figured that out yet? I'm sure there's some scientists and some doctors, but the vast majority of the world, we don't need no calculus. So if you realize around eighth grade that I'm not going to be an astronaut, why don't you let me spend my time doing something more valuable? Just my opinion. I, just my opinion. Just my opinion. I'll throw that out there. All right, all them straight-A math kids are like, I'm leaving this church. <laughs> Math's important. I know that it runs the world. All right, so I want us to understand, I want us to understand this. 70 is 70 sets of seven, okay? 70 sets of seven. This is years, and equals 490 years. You like the squeakiness? He breaks it down. Okay, the, the angel breaks it down, kind of weird. Angels are weird, okay? He could have just said 69 weeks from the issuance of the decree to the coming of the Messiah, but he didn't. He broke it down into seven sets of seven years, uh, seven sevens or 62 sevens. 
He could have just said 483 years, but he didn't. He broke it down. And so it's important that we see this play out like this. So the angel, he breaks this down, and he says, first, there's going to be seven sevens, okay? And that's, anybody want to do the math? 49 years, okay? Then he says, there's going to be 62 sevens, okay? Anybody want to do that math? Get your phone out real fast. 400 and? I heard it. 434. My belief is that if you come up with it, you might remember it better. 434. So that's seven. That's 62. So that leaves one year. So that leaves one set of seven. Okay? Everybody can get this one. How many years is that? Seven Seven years. You guys are geniuses. And this is what he says. He says that, that, that this 490 years of this first set of seven is going to start at the issuance of the decree, okay, to rebuild Jerusalem. And we know that the only decree that was given to rebuild Jerusalem was King Artaxerxes. And we know this in the book of Nehemiah. It gives us literally the month and the year. It says the month of Nisan which in America, uh, in America, in our, in our modern calendar is, is a combination of March and April. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, we see this laid out specifically in Nehemiah. So in the book of Nehemiah, we know that this is 445 BC. Okay, we know that. Extra biblical text, and I think that this is incredibly cool, Medo, uh, Medo-Persian historical ancient text they actually attribute this exact same day, and they have the day, and it was March 14th, or our, what would be equivalent to March 14th, okay? That M stands for what? March. She's paying attention over here. I don't know who this is, but she's on it. The rest of you guys, I'm not sure. All right, this is this side. What's wrong with you guys today? What does M stand for? There we go. All right. I'm sure people are going to leave the church. All right. I want us to... I want us to Get this, understand this. So he says, this is when it's going to begin, on the day that the issue of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. There's only one of those in history. King Artaxerxes does that, gives it to Nehemiah. Nehemiah leaves, he goes, and he begins this project by first building the wall. That's what Nehemiah is all about, okay? And then they go through the book of Ezra. They wind up finishing the project. The, the cool thing about this is, is that we know we know uh, that in Ezra 9 and 10, we know that the project was finished and they reestablished worship in the temple in Jerusalem in 396 BC, okay? That is exactly 49 years. And I, and I, I wanna be really clear because I, I just, you have to remember the 360 day. Ancient calendars are 360 day. Because if you do the math, it's going to be a little bit off. But if, if, you, if you run the word on 360-day calendar, it's dead on. Okay? We changed it. In fact, the Bible even says, attributes in Revelation, that one of the strategies of Satan is to change times and calendars to throw off prophecy in Scripture. So I, I want to point that out. If he does it in Revelation in the later times, why wouldn't he have already done it? There was no reason to go from 360 to 365. None. It makes no sense, right? That's the dumbest thing ever, right? I mean, let's just be honest. All the days are the same. We're like, hey, you know what? Let's just, uh, let's screw February over. I hate that month. Let's give it less days. 
okay? I really enjoy October. Let's throw an extra day on that one, okay? There's no real reason to do it, all right? But we did it. But ancient calendar is 360 days, so it super matters. The prophecy, the first prophecy, again, it could have just said 69 weeks, but he lays out, the angel lays out and says seven sets of seven and 62 sevens to the Messiah. So when you put this weird break in here, it doesn't make sense until they actually finish the city and the temple and begin to worship God again in 396 BC, which is exactly seven sets of seven or 49 years. Okay, can't, you can't make that up. Can't fake that, can't duplicate that. The second part, it says that then the 62 weeks or 62 sets of seven or 434 years, it would from the time the issuance of the decree was made to the time the Messiah, the prince, walked in, it would be seven sets of seven and 62 years. And if you do the math, it goes right up to 32 AD. And we know from ancient historical texts, this was April 6th, 32 AD, from March 14th. Again, I want you to, the way we date every other thing in history is the same way we date this. So there's no reason to believe that March 14th is inaccurate. We know in the Bible, the month and the year. But the day comes to us, and I think it's even more powerful that the day comes from outside the Bible because that's Medo-Persian history, they verified what the Bible says. And if you take that day, it goes directly to April 6, 32 AD. Do you wanna take a guess what happens on April 6, 32 AD? Jesus goes to Jerusalem. What is so powerful about this prophecy is that there's many prophecies that prophesy the coming of the Messiah. There's many prophecies that prophesy the coming of the Messiah that prophesies the coming of Christ, that say that he's gonna come. But there's almost no, there's only one other that comes close, but this is the only one that specifically says the Messiah, the prince, meaning the Messiah, the ruler. It doesn't mean prince the way you and I view prince. We view prince like the son of a king, or you you marry a princess, you become a prince. And the Hebrew word here just means ruler or leader, like a king. The only time, the only day in Jesus's life, the only day in Jesus's ministry, the only day in the gospels where he was acknowledged by the people in Jerusalem as Messiah and as king and as ruler was on Palm Sunday. The literal day that this prophecy ends. So the weight of that, that's why the atheists and the secularists attacked this for so many years. But then they found manuscripts proving that Daniel 9, all of Daniel, including Daniel 9, had been translated already from the Hebrew to Greek over 100 years prior to Christ. So if you, if, if you want to debate some of this, I mean, it's not much of a debate. That's why they don't do it. But there is zero way you can debate this because they know the Septuagint. They know that the Hebrew Bible, including Daniel 9, was translated into the Greek over 100 years prior to Christ. So that means that this book, Daniel said that he had a vision and that Gabriel, an angel, came from the Lord, gave him clarification on that vision. He wrote down the things that Gabriel said in a book for history to read. 
and the things that he gave him, he said that there will be an issuance of a decree to start building Jerusalem. And then seven sets of seven will pass. Ironically enough, 49 years was exactly when they then finished the, the city and the temple and that project and began to worship God. And then 62 sevens to the day was the day the Messiah, the prince, walked into Jerusalem and they acknowledged him as king and as Messiah. You can't fake it. You can't duplicate it. All right, I, I want you to just carry the weight of that for a minute. It goes on to say uh, in, in verse 25, I'm sorry, in verse 26, it says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. So I want, if you're faking a prophecy about the coming Messiah, you don't, you don't say the, the, the prophecy is the Messiah is going to come and then immediately be cut off. Nobody, nobody makes up a hero like that. But that's what this prophecy says. That's what Gabriel, the angel, gave to Daniel. That's what Daniel wrote down. That's what history's preserved. And that's what we're reading right here and right now in this moment. That he said after the, it'll be 62, it'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It'll be 69 sets of seven period from the, the day the issuance of the decree is made to the day he walks into the city. And then it says after that, after it's over, he's cut off. And we know that five days later, the Messiah the prince, Jesus Christ, is arrested and tried, and he dies on a cross for our sin, and he was cut off, and he had nothing for three days, but then he had everything, and that's Easter, and I can't wait to get there. I want you to understand the weight of this. Do you understand the weight of this? Then the, the Bible, it goes on right after this, and, I, and just for a second, I want, to, I want to go through this one more time just so we can make sure we understand the ways. I'm just going to literally read, I'm going to read this to us together. And it's going, to be, it's going to be up on the screen. I want us to understand the 70 sets of seven years. Seven sets of seven years equals 49 years. 62 sets of seven years equals 434 years. Then there's, from the issuance of the decree was 445 BC. We know March 14th from Medo-Persian ancient manuscripts. Ezra 9.10 tells us the project was finished in 396 B.C., exactly 49 years. 434 years from the completion to the Messiah, the prince, would be exactly April 6, 32 A.D., with a 360-day calendar. If you're doing the math on a 365-day calendar, it comes out the, the A.D. 38. That's why it's so important that we remember the ancient calendars are 360 days, not 365. The 62 sets of seven years ended the very day Christ entered the city and was worshiped as king. Five days after the 62 sets of seven years ended, Jesus was crucified or cut off. Then we enter into this, this period that theologians and historians, they call it unreckoned time. You can even tell in the scripture that we're about to read together that, that it is a disbursement of time. There's a lot of time here. But before we read that, I want to make sure that we understand the, what is central to this prophecy is the city of Jerusalem. Every major event is about or takes place in the city of Jerusalem. The issuance of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the uh, achievement and accomplishment and, fi and finishment of 
of Jerusalem in 396 BC. Jesus enters Jerusalem, the Messiah, the Prince, in Jerusalem in 32 AD. Then he's killed outside the city, outside Jerusalem, five days after that. Then this period of unreckoned time, it says, then the people of the Prince who is to come, so this is not Jesus. This is not the Messiah, the prince, because he had just been cut off and now has nothing. Uh, it continues on. Then the people of the prince who is to come, this is the Antichrist. Jesus affirms this, and I'll show you how in just a minute. People of the, of the prince who is to come will then destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations have been decreed. So even in this prophecy, there is a gap of time between the 69th week and that last week. Why? Because the entire prophecy revolves around Jerusalem. It had been destroyed, but there's a decree for it to be rebuilt in 445. Then it says after the Messiah Prince comes, then he's cut off. And then it says that that city is going to be destroyed again. And the sanctuary is going to be destroyed again. This is so important right? because it says now the end will come like a flood. Why do we have the term flash flood? Because floods rise slowly. Right? A flash flood is just that. It's a fast one. Right? This is saying that the end's going to come like a flood. It's going to rise. You, there's nothing you can do to stop it. It's just going to come. There'll be wars until the end. Desolations have been decreed. And then it says, after this, this certain amount of time, it continues on to verse 27, and it says, he, who? The prince who is to come, the Antichrist. And I'll show you why in just a second, while we know for a fact this is indeed the Antichrist. And he will confirm a covenant with many for one week or one set of seven years. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple or the highest place of the temple, he will, uh, it will come the abomination that causes desolation until the decreed destruction is poured out upon it. The reason we know without a doubt that this is the Antichrist is because Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 24 affirms this. We've already studied this at the beginning of the series. In Matthew 24, Jesus calls out Daniel by name. He calls out this prophecy by name, and he calls out this abomination that causes desolation specifically by name. Jesus himself, on the Wednesday before his death, sat with his disciples and told them about the end times, told them about the end game, and Jesus used this scripture, Daniel by name, this verse by name, and the abomination that causes desolation by name, and he confirmed that this is the Antichrist, and he called this time the Great Tribulation. That's where we get the seven-year tribulation from. Revelation also affirms this in its own way, very specifically, which we'll get to later in the series. So I want you to understand the weight of this, this prophecy and the accuracy of this prophecy. What I want to do really fast, because we are going to get into the tribulation next week. We're going to start the, in Revelation, actually get into the details of what happens. But I want us to understand the things that, that are happening that we've already learned. 
I'm gonna combine this prophecy with Matthew 24 and Thessalonians and what little bit of Revelation 13 that we studied about the Antichrist so that we can understand the major events that start it, what happens in the middle and, and how it ends before we get into the details of it. And I just want, I wanna go through this slowly, especially for all my note takers. I want us to understand the main events of the tribulation from this prophecy and all the way through the scriptures I just mentioned. The tribulation begins when Israel, along with many nations, make a covenant with the Antichrist, okay? So I know, listen, I know that there, and I, I, this is not to throw anybody under the bus, this is not to call anybody out, um, but most people have heard that the, that the rapture is what starts the tribulation. If you've heard that, just raise your hand. If you grew up hearing that. All right, that's, that's how it's depicted in uh, Left Behind, the books and the movie. It could happen. It, it, it could correlate. The rapture could happen, and that could be what starts the tribulation. But there's nothing in Scripture that teaches that the rapture is what starts the tribulation. The only teaching that we have in Scripture about the start of the tribulation is right here. The tribulation begins when Israel, along with many other nations, create a covenant or a treaty or a deal with the Antichrist. When Israel does that, he creates a covenant with the Antichrist and many other nations. That is the beginning of the tribulation. That's the only scriptural evidence that we have of the beginning of the tribulation. Could the rapture happen at the same time? It could, but we don't know that to be true based off scripture. The Antichrist then breaks that covenant after three and a half years, all right? He puts an end to the worship of Israel's God. The Antichrist declares himself God and demands worship of the world. This will continue until the Antichrist is destroyed by Jesus himself. Okay. That is the major events of the tribulation in terms of how it begins, it transitions in the middle, and then the ending. Okay. It begins with a covenant with Israel and many nations. The, you know the middle, three and a half years, because we can do simple math, but then he will make it clear uh, by declaring himself God and lifting himself up, as Jesus says, over every other God and demands the worship of the world. And then uh, the wrath will be poured out on the world in the second three and a half years. And then Jesus will return the second coming. And by the breath of his mouth and the majesty of his presence, he'll kill the Antichrist. So spoiler alert, Jesus wins. All right, that's, that's the meat of it. That's the meat of the tribulation. And next week, we're gonna get into that. But what do we do? What do we do with what we just studied? What do we do with the weight of the prophecy that was just given to us? This scripture is the most powerful, powerful scripture that in my mind outright proves not the accuracy of the Bible, but the divinity of the Bible. I want you to understand something that the Bible teaches. In, 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 in Romans, God gives us a picture of his wrath. Now, I know that when we think about wrath, when we think about wrath, we think about like fire and brimstone and, and destruction and hell, 
But when God teaches us about his wrath in Romans 1, it's not that stuff. In fact, it's so not that stuff that some theologians call it passive wrath. Because what he says is, he says, when I give you truth, this is God, when I give you truth, truth beyond the shadow of a doubt. And in Romans, he's talking about creation. In Romans 1, he's talking about creation. He says, when I give you the sun, and I give you existence, you wake up every day. Raise your hand if you woke up this morning. Okay. You wake up, you see the sun. You see the depths of the ocean. You see the height of the mountains. You see the beauty of the stars and the moon and space. You see the, 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 the artistic design of each individual, each animal. You see the heart of creation and every ounce of it points to a creator. But you reject the idea of a, a creator. Literally, Romans says you reject the truth to believe a lie. You reject what is so abundantly obvious. When you see creation and you see the truth and you reject the truth to believe a lie, Romans 1 says the wrath of God is that he hands you over to that delusion. You want to reject truth and believe a lie? God says, I want to let you feel what life is like without the truth. And so the destruction of sin and wickedness and evil, I need you to hear me, that is a part of the wrath because the more that you reject truth and the more that you believe a lie and the farther you get away from God, the more sin dominates you. So the sin, evil, and wickedness, people view it like, like sin, like God's gonna give wrath for sin. Yes, but God also teaches that sin itself is the wrath for rejecting the truth of the creator. That's what Roman 1 teaches. In Revelation, and we'll get there. I'll spend more time on this. In Revelation, when it talks about uh, God's language, when it talks about the tribulation, and it talks about the wrath being poured out in that second three and a half years, the language not one time is, I'm pouring my wrath out on sinners. Not one time. It says, I'm pouring my wrath out on those who rejected the truth of my son, Jesus. Do you know why? I need you to hear me. The world doesn't have a sin problem anymore because Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world 2,000 years ago on the cross. Every ounce of sin that has ever been committed or will ever be committed, Jesus already paid that price on the cross. So now, and I want you, don't write me emails. People aren't going to go to hell because of sin. Because they don't have a sin problem. Jesus paid the price. They're going to go to hell because they rejected the truth of Jesus Christ. That's why when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of sin, the only sin it mentions is that they do not believe. So when you get handed a prophecy like this and scripture like this with the accuracy and the power of it and you reject that truth 
to believe the lies of this world and the lies of the human mind and the lies of Satan himself, then wrath will be poured out upon you, but not because God hates you and not because you're a sinner, but because you rejected his word and his truth and you rejected the cross of Jesus Christ. So what, what should this scripture, what should this prophecy, what, what should this prophecy mean to our lives? This should cause us to throw ourselves on this altar and weep before the presence of a living God. This should cause us to rearrange our entire lives. And if we haven't put our faith in Jesus, this should cause us to be in agony until we do because of the weight and the accuracy of this scripture. And if we are lukewarm Christians, we should weep and repent for wasting our lives chasing the things of this world. The weight of this scripture and the accuracy of this scripture and the power of this scripture, it takes more with, with, with scripture like this and with the accuracy of the Bible and the way that everything the Bible says comes more true and more true and more true as time goes on. I, I mean this when I say this. It takes more faith to be an atheist in this day and age than it does to believe the Bible because of the power and the accuracy of the word. So I wanna be really clear here. Will people suffer tremendously in the tribulation? Yes, they will. Will they suffer tremendously, especially in the last three and a half years during the wrath part of the tribulation? Yes, they will. But they will not suffer because they're sinners. They will suffer because they rejected the Son of God, and they rejected the blood of Jesus Christ, and they rejected the truth of Scripture. My prayer all week has been that the Holy Spirit would create an urgency in your heart. Because with something like this, not only not only should this encourage us and build our faith, this should cause us to fall in love with God's word and let it be what guides us every day because there's nothing else in this world. There's nothing else that culture can offer. There's nothing else that modern society can offer you that is more powerful, has more genuine power in it than God's word. And you will pick something to let guide you. You will pick something to tell you what success is. You will pick something to tell you what to do with your life. And what I'm telling you is if you pick anything or anybody other than God's word and the son, Jesus Christ, you will waste your life every second of it. And so we should celebrate as Christians. We should celebrate and we should worship and we should thank God for the power and the accuracy of his word. And we should give all of ourselves over to him. And if we're still riding the fence or sitting in the middle, this should be something that should push us over and give every second and every part of our life for the glory and the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to pray, and I love you guys with all of my heart, but if there's anybody in this room, if there's anybody at home, and you feel the weight of this, and you feel the presence of God, and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, please put your faith in Jesus right now. We want to pray for you. There'll be people down here. There'll be people in the tent out there. If you're at home, contact us. God is moving. God is moving.